Welcome to Acomedia, a podcast brought to you by the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. I'm Christine Becker. And I am Michael Kackman at the University of Notre Dame. Yeah, and I'm by title at the university, but by body, I am in Athens, Georgia right now. Does this give you, like, dissociative fits? It is a little bit different. It's a little bit different scene here. Um, yeah, so I've got a, a research leave, this uh, or a teaching leave. I don't know, whatever you call it, a sabbatical this semester. And so um, I'm living down in Athens, uh, not for the research part, but because that's where my husband lives. He teaches at UGA. So I'm down here actually living with my husband. Imagine that. That seems positively uh, reasonable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a good place to be. I'm especially looking forward to when, you know, say November comes along and there are no snowstorms that I have to worry about. I'm excited about that part. Dead air. Yeah. <laughs> also, my cats, my husband has a screened in porch and my cats are in heaven because they just basically right now they're inside napping. But when they're not inside napping, they're outside enjoying the squirrels. And you're going to go soft. <laughs> I might. You're going to lose some of that, you know, Midwestern hard. Yeah. It'll be it'll be a rough January when I come back and have to yeah. experience South Bend January. It's okay. We'll like, you know, make you cookies or something. Okay. That's a good plan. Let's plan for that. Excellent. Uh, yeah. So we got a really exciting episode for you as we record and then, you know, it's another week or two till this comes out, but I'm pretty confident in saying there's still a strike going on. I don't think it's going to wrap up yeah. in the next few days. So there's still the writer's strike, the WGA strike, and the SAG after strike going on. And so uh, and I follow this very closely because I teach a class called Media Industries and this is sort of one of my areas of interest. And I also, I'm internship coordinator for my department, so I'm sort of hyper aware of um, you know student interest in the industry. So I got to thinking about the strike and both information about the strike, but also what it's like to be uh, as an academic when your area of study is the hot topic that especially journalists want to talk to you about. So I contacted two good friends in media industry studies, Miranda Banks and Kate Fortmuller, to ask them about you know how this is going for them as their areas of study, the stuff that they publish books about is top of mind for everyone and every journalist. Excellent. They're both good eggs uh, and give a good interview, but they're also really, they're just a, a really good sampling of, of how to handle that, that kind of tricky interaction. All right, let me real quick give you the bios of the two folks I'm talking to here. So first, Miranda Banks is chair and associate professor of film, television, and media studies at Loyola Marymount University, though this fall she is the John H. Mitchell visiting professor of media entertainment at the University of Michigan. She's the author of The Writers, A History of American Screenwriters and Their Guild, co-editor of two production studies collections, and co-editor of the forthcoming Media Industries in Crisis, What COVID Unmasked. She is the co-director of Edit Media, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion in Teaching Media, and co-recipient of the SUMS 2022 Innovative Pedagogy Award. And then Kate Fortmuller is Associate Professor of Film and Media History at Georgia State University. She's the author of Below the Stars, How the Labor of Working Actors and Extras Shapes Media Production, as well as Hollywood Shutdown, Production, Distribution, and Exhibition in the Time of COVID, both from University of Texas Press. She is also co-editor of the forthcoming anthology Hollywood Unions, which I really look forward to reading. All right, let's give it a listen. Listen. 
Well, thanks so much for uh, joining the ACA Media Podcast. We've got here Kate Fortmuller. Thanks, Kate, for being here. Hi. Thanks for having me. And then also Miranda Banks. Hello, Miranda. Hello. So nice to see you and hear you. Yeah, well, it's great to have you two on the podcast. Uh, I know you two are very busy people. Um, all of us are very busy people. But when, you know, all this strike stuff is going on, um, I got a few phone calls, but I can imagine you all got a lot of phone calls from the press, people who want to talk to you. So I'm curious about that as a starting point. What's it like when your area of expertise is suddenly in demand, where you have, you know, the mainstream press, the trades who want to talk to you because you are the expert? Take us into that vortex of suddenly your work really, really matters to people. So I will, I will say I'm going to start actually with something that my um, dissertation chair and mentor Ellen Sider told me. I think as I was finishing my book, I was in that point, as many of us are, where I was just very tired of it. Um, and I wanted to be done and I didn't want to have to reread it one more time. And what she told me was, you're never done with it. Um, people will always come back to you. It will be the thing that you are known for. Um, and at that moment, it was a little bit, when you are that exhausted from a particular project, that that was a little overwhelming for me. Um, and I don't think I fully understood what she meant um, until, actually, I would say this kind of like fast paced your research matters started actually for me when IATSE almost went on strike in 2021. Um, and I think that had a lot to do with the fact that I have this title um, below the stars. So I think people saw below the stars and thought below the line and then asked me if I could talk about that. So um, I've done a couple rounds, I would say, of these kinds of like lots and lots of calls. Um, I think the first time in 2021, I did about 25 interviews within a pretty short amount of time. Um, and I was going through the tenure process. So I was actually keeping really good track of those. I have not been quite as dutiful um, this summer, I would say. And I think I've done a lot more than 25 based on what I've kept track of. Uh, well, first, I'll start with a thank you, Chris, to you, because the first person who actually contacted me about this was at the moment of the strike just being called, uh, actually told me that they got my name from you. So I, I, I think... And I think it speaks to something really important, which is some people might love talking to the press and for other people, it might be incredibly frightening. And for other people, it might just sound boring and useless and um, know and think about where you are in that process. Decide how you feel about the kind of scholar you want to be. And do you have aspirations about being a dare I say, public intellectual, you know, and not everybody does. And other people really love it and and want to kind of create their work and imagine their work in an accessible environment. That said, it takes an enormous amount of work to translate. And it is not easy. And it takes a million revisions of your thinking. Um, it is not the same as trying to talk to an 18-year-old undergraduate. Um, it's a very, very different thing. So think about it and, and think about your work, um, no matter your topic, um, about whether or not you really do want to create that conversation with a public-facing kind of approach to your work. Uh, I think it's a joy to do it. Um, it is a little bit scary. <laughs> um, 
but then you start doing it more and it, you kind of get on a roll. I, I just did a AM radio one yesterday and I was like, I nailed it, you know, and, <laughs> um, and, and it feels really good. It feels really, really good. But um, gathering talking points, getting a sense of what works or what doesn't, you know, having notes on the side of your computer as you're doing these chats is really, really helpful. Not having full sentences, but having kind of phrases that you want to latch onto is really helpful. But inevitably, they're not going to ask the questions you think they're going to ask. And you just have to roll with it. And um, our, our discipline is a lot about perfectionism. And this is the opposite of that. This is about speed. This is about responding to a call when you get it. Um, this is not delaying until the end of the day. So if you're not interested in doing this, pass it on to somebody else. Pass it on to a scholar that you know is in a better time zone for this or you know whose research would be great. Um, you know, there's a real generosity of spirit that goes along with doing this work, I think, and really encouraging each other to learn these skills. And I think there's a lot that we can do as a discipline to, um, to help journalists understand what it is that we do and how we might fit into their work. We think about economists constantly being interviewed about what's happening in the economy or something. Um, but when they come to talking about media or media industries or the latest film or the latest TV show, they often turn to the stars or the producers or agents or other journalists. And if we want to make a voice for ourselves, we need to learn how to talk. To that community, I had um, I did only a handful of them, but that notion of like having to operate quickly and then also feeling overwhelmed. Like my university decided they were going to push out my name, and the BBC picked it up. And this was the night the strike, the WGA strike started, and so they asked me. It was like probably 3 p.m. or something like that, and said, you know, can you be on at midnight your time? Because it was the 5 a.m. BBC News live, and I was like, I immediately said sure. And then I was like, oh, my God, I was so nervous. And I had, you know, that idea of like writing down some talking points is a great idea because I had the things in my head. They also told me, here's the questions you're going to get. And then the woman didn't answer those questions because they had done like a pre-interview of me. And she took my answers to make it sound like she knew what she was talking about and then asked me different questions. And so... I gave what I thought were really kind of bland, dumb answers. So I'm happy that I got like this cool screenshot of me on the BBC, but I have no interest in anyone ever seeing that video again because it just, you know, it was rough. Yeah, that's how you put it in your CV without a link to it, right? That's <laughs> yeah. how you do it. But but I think it's, it's um, you, you bring up another really important point in this, which is be careful how much work you do for them and protect the ideas that you have because inevitably, you know, a, a really good question to ask a, a reporter if they reach out to you, no matter the topic is, is this for attribution? And, you know, you can help out and talk to a reporter and not want attribution. You know, if you just are like, oh yeah, I'd love to guide somebody else's thinking. But if for you, the attribution is important and the time and the work that it takes to think on this, make sure that that's really clear at the beginning. Yeah, I will say that's a good point. And I, I, I would also say in terms of putting time into this, I feel like when I first started doing some of these, like years ago, I would have sort of like notes or things that I wanted to say, and I, I would get too fussy with that. 
And I think that one of the things that maybe happens, especially when you kind of do a lot of these, I know this is like a very unusual circumstance where you have this many opportunities to kind of say your piece um, and talk about your your research area and ideas. Um, but I definitely get more concise the more I do. And so I think that's when they become easier to say yes. If I've done two in a day and somebody emails me and I'm like, yeah, sure, call me now, right? Like <laughs> now's great because I ha- I'm pretty, sh- I'll, I'll be pretty sharp, right? And I have, I've just talked to someone and I have like some key points and I feel like I'm a little bit more concise once I've warmed up um, from a few conversations. So I think some of those, you get in kind of a rhythm is I guess one of the things that I've found. But yeah, the speed of it is, is not for everyone. I mean, I know some academics who, who, who don't get back to you ever within 24 hours. And that's just not really how news cycles work. Um, you have to be somebody who, who does actually kind of regularly check your email and, and responds quickly without fussing over what that response will be. Yeah. I mean, that's something that we can speak to with, you know, our field historically is there are certain people who are very, very good at coming up with a quick, fast take on popular culture or on media. And they they are the people that the reporters go to and for good reason, because they've got a job to do. So if you want to be one of those people with a hot take, you gotta figure out how to be available. And and you know, it was terrible timing. Uh the when I feel bad for all of the writers and and everyone working above the line and below the line. And when a strike happens, it's terrible timing for all of them. But personally, it was terrible timing in my life. Um, when the strike happened, um, my father had just passed, you know, two weeks before and I'm department chair and it was the last two weeks of the semester. And so it, it, it demanded a certain amount of a decision that I needed to make about what I was going to say yes to and no to. So um, that was extreme circumstances, but but again, think really carefully about what it is that you want to take on and whether or not ultimately your institution cares about those things. Um, you know, Chris, as you said, your institution really cares about it so much so that they're putting you out there whether or not you're, you know, sure and ready to do it, which is great, but it also is a big demand in other places, you know, your department chair, your dean couldn't care less and it's a lot of work. So, and that means not only for the job that you have, but also potentially for the job you might want in the future. You know, if you're, if you're interested in getting a job with a school that has, that wants a high public profile, having some of those things on your CV might be of use, but I would also really encourage senior scholars to be doing this. I think junior scholars are much more savvy and have their voices out on social media more or might be using Twitter or, you know, other ways of of writing and blogging and speaking about their issues. But senior scholars have a wealth of knowledge and and I really would encourage not just, you know, junior scholars to do this, but but really to encourage senior scholars to get out there and have your voices heard. And sort of adding on to that, I would say that senior scholars also might have books on topics. I mean, I think that when you have done a lot of research and written a book on writers, or you've done a lot of research on and have a book about actors, 
you're less likely to have hot takes and just more likely to have really baked in takes um, that are really easy to pull from. I think that's kind of, um, you know, Miranda and I wrote something for the Washington Post made by site. And I we have a list of about like 15 different ideas of what we could have written about for that that I, my memory is that we came up with very quickly. Um, so it wasn't really about like, you know, oh, we need to go do some like back research on this to figure out what we would write. It's like, here are all the different angles that could, this could take, which one are we going to choose, which feels the most urgent right now. And I think that's what comes from like having a bit, spent a bit more time with a topic, you know, and is really what you can bring to the table. And also you've done the research, you've already written the book on it, as opposed to taking time out and away from a topic that you're currently writing about or that, you know, is key to you just to answer a particular question or just to do a particular uh, journalistic piece. And, And I think that's a really good, that is actually a really good bellwether for whether or not you should take a media request. (laughs) Um, If you need to spend the morning doing a refresher on a topic to figure out your take, it's not worth your time. Um, Because you, yeah, I've gotten some weird requests and I just, if it's not, I don't remember. There was some, at one point it was like, can you talk about Elon Musk buying Twitter? You know, and I was like, no, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Um, and part of that's just kind of like, I have other things to do that I always have other things to do rather than talk about Elon Musk. Um, but I'm not the person to, to, to have, you know, to comment on that. And I even honestly, at that point, I think off the top of my head, I couldn't even really think of who the right person would be. Um, and if you're that far outside that conversation, then I think that for me, that's where you kind of say no. The other piece of like, doing these conversations and maybe we'll talk about this more with teaching if we talk a little bit about that but I do really see these calls as part an extension of my role as an instructor um, and that's kind of and I know that it, it is different than talking about with 18 year olds but I think especially like I'll kind of occasionally end up on calls with people who are just um, and this was very much at the beginning of the strike I had a lot of calls with reporters who were just like what should we even be looking at and this was also with IATSE, like there was a piece that they just kind of published as a Q&A with me in the Atlantic. And it was just, that was like, I think like a 90 minute conversation about just like, we don't understand, just tell me, like, who are these workers? What do we need to know about them? Why should anyone, get, like, why should our average reader care about this, these issues, these people? And so those kinds of big conversations those are the things sometimes I have to prove to my students. Like, why do I care? Right. Why should I care? And I tend to think of my students as, you know, smart on the level of an Atlantic reader or smart on the level of like a Hollywood reporter reader. And so, um, and I guess I like, I will also kind of preface this with, I, for the past seven years, I've only had juniors and seniors. So maybe it's, I'm not actually talking to freshmen. Um, But I do sort of see those conversations as kind of like making a case for why what I study is important and why what our field does is important. And obviously I think I also care about the people who work in these industries whether they're the ones currently in these industries or my students who are trying to be in these industries. So making sure those conversations are happening and people have a broad-based understanding is really important. 
And that also makes me feel better about using my time to do these things as opposed to just like, I'm promoting my brand, getting my brand (laughs) out there. Um, So I think when you kind of look at it from a kind of perspective of advocacy and instruction, it's easier to find purpose in all the time that you're spending doing it. Yeah, I did one with, um, I won't name the outlet because the reporter was very nice and I don't mean to insult her, but um, we talked for a long time and she didn't know anything about how the industry works. So she works for a business outlet. But one of her first questions was like, so are unions important to Hollywood? And like, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then she, like, there were just basic things she didn't know. And so, you know, I was happy to fill her in, but I was also like, wow, okay, we have to like really start at the beginning here. And I talked to her for, I think like an hour and I got like maybe one quote in. So the nice notion of, all right, I got the one thing my department can put it on our website or whatever, but hopefully I helped filter in. But I was just sort of like, and especially that idea then of they need to be um, instructed about that sub area about, you know, economics work differently in different places. And so that I felt like I did some good with that, even though I barely appeared in this article, but I was just sort of surprised like, oh, wow, maybe you should have looked that up a little bit before you, you started in. Yeah. The, the sort of broad context that you end up getting into in these conversations like like I yeah and I guess the other part of that is it's hard because I just go into teacher mode right it's like explain to me you know like the economics of streaming like that just it's just like you know all of a sudden like you go straight into your kind of front of the classroom media industries professor mode well, you you mentioned you've both been working on this for a long time. And of course, then this brings us even back to a previous strike. So I'm interested in that historical scope about how does this compare to your experience of the previous strike, either the circumstances of the strikes or where you were at in your careers and how those things affected what you were doing at the time. So and of course, I'm referring back to the 2007 strike. And uh, so any thoughts about that, like kind of where you see this historical tra- trajectory working for you as scholars or or your object of study? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's been a personal and professional joy thinking a lot of this through with Kate uh, over the last couple months. And uh, together, we were the piece that we wrote for the Washington Post really frames this current strike in relation to the 1960s strikes, the dual strikes. They are not joint strikes. They are dual strikes that were happening in the industry where SAG and the WGA actually ended up striking at the same time together. And because of that, Kate's depth of knowledge about the, you know, SAG-AFTRA and, and mine on the Writers Guild and both of our interests in labor, it was really, really fun to talk about. And um, I also want to kind of frame another key moment, and, and there are many, there's not just these two, but that both... Uh, both guilds emerged or the the idea of the guild both emerged at the same time too, which is in 1933. Um, uh, the Writers Guild existed as a social club before then, but um, and ultimately didn't get their first contract until 1941. But 1933 is the moment when, again, those uh, all of these workers really came together in terms of trying to imagine a different labor situation and kind of saw that each of them was had unique struggles and needed unique uh, union representation uh, that would fight for the particular battles that they had, but saw a sense of solidarity in uh, a mission of needing transformative change. So uh, yeah, that's, that's one side of this. The other side is on a very personal note, 
uh, in 2007, uh, I had just fairly recently, you know, uh, I was going into my second year of my first full-time gig as a, you know, as a professor and my dissertation work had been on gendered labor below the line. And I had become really fascinated over the course of 2007 that all of these weird labor conversations were happening in the Writers Guild. Something strange was happening in the AMPTP with actually having conversations with the press tour, the national press tour. And I was a visitor to the press tour that summer and uh, the writer's girls was having special cocktail hours with the journalists and kind of said something strange is going on here. And as somebody who had studied labor, I started tracking what was happening the summer before the writer's guild strike. And then as a professor, it, there was really a moment of realization that uh, while I was teaching, you know, intro to television and, you know, classes on, you know, theory um, and history, I wasn't really tracking the issues of labor per se. And um, separately, my colleagues uh, who were teaching screenwriting at the time, you know, were teaching a lot on how to pitch and writing a script and scene work and, uh, you know, uh, character development and all of these different things, but they weren't talking about professionalization. And, and so I was witness to my colleague, John Furia, Howard Rodman at USC, talking to our shared students about, hey, there's negotiations going on. They're not going well. There might be a strike. And I kind of realized, wow, here are all of these students that, you know, at a very industry-focused institution, were not necessarily getting an education on labor history or weren't necessarily experiencing conversations in the classroom about, well, what does it mean to work for a union and that your dream job is actually working for someone who's working for a major multinational corporation, you know, and, um, and that this is, this is a real negotiation and this might not look like your fantasy of being an artist and a creator. So to me, that was a really key moment in saying, this is a history I want to write. This is fascinating and interesting. And so I, I credit that experience, um, Howard um, and John uh, being really visionary people and guiding me towards, you know, ending up writing an entire book and, and a book that was really about moments of crisis for the Raiders Guild rather than writing an entire labor history um, or a union history, because man, that is a depth of knowledge that is, is really distinct and different than, you know, than what I was really interested in, which was about professionalization. So I was physically in the same place as during, <laughs> uh, during the last strike, but um, mentally profession and personally, like professionally in a very different spot. Um, so I was in my second year of my master's program and enrolled during the strike in Ellen Sider's um, political economy of media class, which I think was only taught that one time, but um, was a great class, had a lot of great guest speakers. And during that strike, one of the, um, Miranda and Ellen co-authored something that speaks to a lot of what Miranda was just talking about, about students not really being aware of 
the the union history of Hollywood, the fact that they would be most of them would be or were aspiring to go into union jobs and the kind of gap between sort of their understanding of the industry and sort of what their career goals were, more or less. Um, so my feeling around this, not just kind of reading that piece that they wrote for Flow, but also thinking about so thinking about that in terms of like well, okay, if I do this, go on to a PhD, what will I be teaching? What do I want to be teaching? What do I think is important for future generations to understand about this industry? That to me seemed like a glaring, <laughs> a glaring hole um, in what students should have been kind of learning. So I think, you know, when you're trying to figure out sort of or think through what your dissertation would be, Part of it's like, what kind of knowledge do I want to put in the world? But then also, how how will my teaching and research relate to each other um, in a way that is meaningful? And so I think that what I was sort of feeling during that strike was not only that this was like a major kind of labor crisis, um, because it was really clear that digital distribution, which did not look like much in 2007, eight. Um, and I'm kind of reminded, I was kind of reminded of this. I was re I was reading through, I think, I think reading for the first time, maybe I was rereading, but the in media res um, week that Miranda and Ellen and um, Julia Himberg, Derek compare and, um, Oh, and Jennifer Holt. And I was, you know, reading through that. I think one of the things that I'm sort you're sort of struck by is that it's not that necessarily the points are sig significantly different. It's just kind of what the examples are feel very, you're, it's a reminder of like, oh, wow, like we're really talking about YouTube a lot here, um, right? When we're talking about digital distribution. Um, and I think, so I th there's a few things, I think, just in terms of, um, and sort of one of the main things that has kind of continued to kind of stick with me in relation to these issues is really like the kind of utopian ideas about digital distribution and how that collides with an industry that's been unionized since um, the first, right? So the first studio-based agreement with IATSU is 1926. And then the above the line unions are the 30s. So this is a, essentially an industry that has been unionized for almost a hundred years. Um, and, and that's very baked into how this industry functions, um, but it is not baked into how tech functions. Um, so that collision between tech industries, tech culture, um, gig economy, which was visible in 2007-8, um, seemed like something that would eventually lead to a collision like what we're seeing now. Um, or I don't know, it might be worse in the future. This might not even be the worst of it, um, frankly. But I think those kinds of fundamental cultural differences, both in terms of how people work, in terms of organization of industry, in terms of rhetoric, right? I think I'm sort of thinking a lot about this rhetoric of disruptor, tech disruptor, um, when labor really is the labor should be the disruptor. Labor is kind of the disruptor right now. But those things mean different things. Well, then speaking of going forward and the classroom, you'll all have to, in some form, teach this. And our listeners, some of them out there are going to be teaching this. So I'm curious what thoughts you have about how we bring this into the classroom. And especially the, you know, Miranda brought up this point earlier, like we're teaching students who aspire to be in this industry. And it's been very visible, especially thanks to social media, how abusive this industry is. And that's not news, but especially the way in which people can speak out about that and provide literal receipts, uh, residuals or, you know, Me Too stories or whatever. And so we're preparing students who 
who love this and want to do this and are going to start out as they all start out in really difficult circumstances and have to fight their way through it and so on and so forth. So how do you kind of marry that idea of like teaching them, here's how things work. Here's how you might be able to find your place in that. Here's how you can work your way through it or whatever, however you might frame that. Without bringing them into a deeper sense of despair and Exactly, <laughs> right. Yeah. Making it even harder for them to tell their parents what they want to do for a living. So I, well, I will say, okay, my disclaimer here, I'm not teaching this fall, um, <laughs> but I will say I, I do all, I mean, as part of how I kind of picked my research object was really based on like, that this is something important that I want to be able to teach unions and talk about unions and work in whatever I teach. Um, I have always taught labor issues. My students have always thought I'm a bit of a wet blanket um, because I don't, think I need to tell them. I don't need to teach them how to love this. They come to me with a lot of passion. Um, I need to teach them how to like not let that passion be exploited. Um, and those are different things. And some will listen and some will not. Um, that's the other thing. Some don't want to hear it. And that's fine. They don't need to hear it. Teaching's a long game if they hear it in five years. Some, at least I said it. Um, so it's not about the instant gratification in terms of them listening to me always. But I will say I'm sort of thinking through because I've kind of historically always taught industry classes. The way that I would be teaching this would be opening kind of week one. This would be my entry point um, into the semester as kind of like in order to understand this conflict, here are all the different <laughs> issues that you need to understand about labor financialization, streaming, or is it like just kind of go through the whole host of different issues that have come to the table with the strike. Um, and then I can sort of point to where, so as a week one thing, it would be kind of pointing to like where I would expand upon that in various points of my syllabus. Um, in the spring, I'm teaching gender and film and television and a style and narrative class. And the style and narrative class, I have, I have a rough idea of what it is, but I don't. I think it's going to be a genre class, which is very unusual for me. Um, but I think for me in teaching gender and film and television, I think that what I would, where I would approach um, this issue, although gender isn't necessarily what is kind of coming up with this particular strike, I think what I would be bringing up are issues of mentoring. What kinds of opportunities are being are available for people of color, um, women, right? Like in this industry, thinking about the Netflix firings from a few years ago and trying to focus a little bit on sort of these streaming industries and the opportunities they don't create or do create and then pull the rug out from um, as kind of what I would be talking about. So I do think... For me, as somebody who thinks about these things a lot, I think there's a way that I could talk about this in any class that I were to teach. But that being said, this is also spring. So um, I don't have a syllabus. Please nobody ask me for a syllabus. I have no <laughs> It's too late or it's too early. Well, I'm in the process of writing a new syllabus this week. So it's uh, it, it's kind of interesting to be watching history happen as you're trying to write the future of the next few weeks and months, and we don't really know where things are going. Um, I would say it's a great time to potentially ask some actors or writers to come speak in your classes because they're a little less busy than usual. Um, no matter where you're teaching, um, you know, this is the issue with runaway production. Um, no matter where you're teaching, you might actually have actors 
or uh, writers who are local. And, uh, you know, if you are happen to be at a institution that has enough financial uh, support to offer honoraria for um, speakers, it would be a really incredible way of providing some support and uh, a space for an actor or for a writer to talk about what they're doing. Um, they might have you know, everything from them will be framed in a very personal perspective, um, but it will really give voice and energy to a conversation about it. And then you don't have to be the expert. But uh, I, I had an experience uh, just this past weekend. I was on a, a, a really fun, amazing panel at the Skirball Center uh, here in Los Angeles uh, about the blacklist and Hollywood and the blacklist. And what was great about it was that I could speak about what was happening, you know, in the contemporary moment, along with the panelists, they had the chief negotiator um, uh, for the tag after there. And I just wanted to talk to him about Fran Drescher's speech, which if you have not watched is visionary and uh, amazing um he was there and one of the negotiators for the writers guild was on the panel and uh, a labor journalist uh, jonathan handel uh was on the panel with me and you know each one of them had their own perspective on things but what was interesting was i was asked a question about how do you frame all of this especially in the context of this exhibition that was going on about the blacklist. And I thought about all of the people that have been teaching American film history or, or might think about these things. And, and a lot of what's at stake here um, are conversations about the unique voice, the voice, um, the voice of uh, script and of character and story through acting. And, you know, the conversation about AI is front and center, you know, obviously in the classroom in all sorts of ways um, that we have to deal with, but but also just within this strike. And so to think about the Hollywood blacklist and, uh, and put it in the uh, kind of relationship with the current battle around writers and actors that have around artificial intelligence, I, I'm reminded that the the Red Scare, individuals in Hollywood were persecuted under the First Amendment, the right to free speech. And so much about what we love about Hollywood, um, but really about film and television and streaming media is tied to the voices of creatives. So um, I think that there's ways of framing the idea of voice and as a right um, to nurture, protect, and fairly compensate the human voice um, and the individual voice that's a part of an American identity that, that we can put front and center in here. And, and so I think that there's all sorts of ways to frame uh, what we're talking about that might be useful for a number of different classes. And if you're teaching something that's wildly different than this, um, you know, we've all had the experience of moments of media history playing out while we're teaching classes that may not be necessarily relevant. But if I've learned anything about teaching, it's that the students that are walking into our classroom are living whole and full lives outside that they bring into the classroom with them. And so to imagine that they keep that um, packed up in their backpacks 
and close off those identities or those experiences or those questions or those fears and just teach whatever you're teaching is a real failure of an opportunity to frame whatever the topic is of your class uh, within the context of what's the contemporary moment. And even if it feels wildly irrelevant, I think that taking a moment to just get the temperature of a group of students in the class and say, hey, I read the news today. How are people feeling? What are you thinking about? What have you read? You know, how do we frame this? We're talking about media. How do we frame this in a context of how this conversation is being mediated? I think you're doing good. Um, you're doing good by your students. Um, but as for how to talk about this in the class, I think it is really vital. You know, no matter what industry our students are going into, issues of thinking about labor, um, about you know, the power of a CEO and how different that is than, you know, a producer, <laughs> um, you know, and, and the idea that, you know, on a, on a film set, on a television set, it's not studio heads anymore. We lost the studio head role. And then now we have CEOs that are above studio heads. Women only became studio heads when there was a CEO ahead of them, right? So no matter what you're talking about, about power dynamics, the industry is extremely hierarchical. Um, and those power dynamics are, are fascinating to look at. So I, I don't know. I don't know how I'm, I'm teaching it, but uh, I'm happy to share my syllabus once I figure it out. Um, one final area I wanted to touch on was then uh, those listeners out there who want to keep up with this stuff, who want to know what's happening and, you know, sort of feel like they are following educated sources. What do you recommend? Like, who have you found to be good sources? Like, how are you tracking the events through sources that you trust? How are you navigating learning about what's going to happen next? Okay, so I am a... I will admit that I, I love Kim Masters. I'm a total Kim Masters fangirl. Yes, um, yes, yes. She's amazing. The yeah, I was going to say. So the business, listen to the business. Um, I love the banter with the business. And she oftentimes, and I will say I, I kind of, Matt Bellany, who is the head of Puck, I kind of enjoy his commentary more when he's in the banter with Kim Masters sometimes than I do with his own commentary on the town. That's personal. Um, Lucas Shaw does some of the kind of broader stuff as well. Um, but for my kind of personal following, I'm a Hollywood reporter, um, reader for all things coverage. I think Katie Kilkenny is doing a really outstanding job, um, with a lot of spearheading, a lot of the coverage on the strike for Hollywood reporter. Um, Winston Cho does a lot of the legal coverage. And one of the things that I really like about his coverage is that he often, FOIA's filings and puts them on Scribd for everyone to download. Yes. So I really appreciate like that kind of scholarly impulse that he has. I'm going to just add to your podcast. The deadline podcast is on the strike is tremendous and, and uh, beautifully framed as only a writer could do every single week um, in ways that, that are, are very playful and smart. Um, but as for very specific pieces, I think Kate has been actually pulling together an incredible bibliography that's, uh, that, uh, Chris, I believe you're going to make available as well um, for people, depending on those different points of interest or points of access that, that faculty are looking for. 
So, yeah. So, okay. So what I am doing is assembling a bibliography. I will say it's a bit more curated. I have kind of a larger bibliography of, of sites and sort of articles, but I tried to curate this down a little bit. So it was manageable for people trying to sift through for teaching. So I have shared it in the teach in a few Facebook groups. I've shared it on my Twitter account. I guess we're still calling it Twitter. I've shared it on my Blue Sky account as well. Um, but I'm happy to kind of make it a bit. I will share it with anyone who wants to share it anyway. It's basically a Google Doc about um, various sources. So I have um, essentially kind of a rundown of the books that are about general kind of union histories. Um, what you will notice in that is that they're quite old. And I think this is kind of back to what Miranda was saying about like a labor history of these things is so overwhelming. And I'm currently sort of in the process of, I don't know, in the pro it's in it's plugging through the various kind of forms. But I co-edited an anthology on Hollywood unions with Lucy Marzola. Um, and I will say one of the lessons from that is that in order to really understand the work of unions, you need to have a massive collaboration across scholars. Um, and so that's the other thing I will say. That is like more than any one person could possibly do. Um, just because those histories are vast and complicated and require like understanding really different work cultures. Um, so it's like a big thing. So um, essentially I have the books on kind of general union histories some ones that are on specifically WGA and SAG or SAG-AFTRA. Um, and then I have some sources related to the contemporary strike. I think there are obviously like other articles um, for a very, at speaking to kind of various historical points related to the unions. But I think for trying to teach this particular strike or to kind of contextualize this strike. I'm not sure that some of the like article length arguments are always going to give you kind of what you need necessarily. Um, I think I will say that this isn't, you know, unions and Hollywood union history has not been a particularly large area of film and media scholarship. There really is a lot of work to be done. I feel like there's, um, I was, talking to, I was speaking with Peter Labuza who works for um, Local 600 and he was like, nobody's written on the 1960s strike. And I was like, oh, I was like, I know. I was like, I don't, I don't even write about it enough. Like I failed everyone. He was like, no, he's like film, the field. We were saying kind of the field has had a lot of time to write some of these histories. Um, so it is not necessarily like on my shoulders or Miranda's shoulders to like cover every bit of this history. But um, suffice to say, um, if this has really like sparked anyone, if anyone's interest, there is a lot of room to do work on the history of the unions. And I think our field would be enriched if we had a better disciplinary understanding um, and more voices speaking about unions and union history. Well, hopefully this will uh, this podcast will become an origin story. We will have launched uh, hundreds of new scholars, especially to take a little bit of the you know the burden off of you all for getting all these phone calls. So hopefully we've inspired some folks here. I will say, you know, every SCMS 
kind of academic community has sub areas and subsections, but I think that there's a lot of a lot of love and a lot of passion in the group of labor scholars that are out there, and uh, and I think that we're also as we are talking about the labor of creatives, we're hyper aware of the labor, our own academic labor, and um, the way that our institutions are transforming, and some of the same problems that are happening at the level of the you know Hollywood industry are very much happening at the level of our institutions you know this kind of high highs and low lows and a failure to really understand it and um, shifts in technology and you know how that's transforming work and expectations of faculty labor um, you know it's it, there's there are interesting ways to frame all of this. Um, you know, and there's ways of framing it and ways for students that are about, you know, Amazon, you know, our own use of Amazon and what is an Amazon employee and how is an Amazon employee that shows up at your house every day, similar to an Amazon employee who is on the picket line. And, um, you know, what is, what do all of these things mean? So I, I really do recommend as you think about how you want to frame this in your classes or you know, in conversations is to really think about how is this impacting you? How is this impacting your students? What are you seeing on TV? Um, and then the only other thing I would just say is there's a huge difference as we always remember um, every year that like as we get older, our students keep staying the same age. And, um, and just to frame the fact that the last Writers Guild strike was about in part a tiny part of it was you know it was a, it was about many things but about digital but about the idea of streaming and at the time the CEOs were saying this is you know this is something off in the future we don't yet know we can't really imagine it and it was only one month after the writers guild strike that hulu launched and so if we can frame that idea of how much this industry has radically changed and how many of our students maybe really started independently watching media around that time, um, that we can maybe get a better sense of how they imagine media and, um, and how different it is from the way that we even learned this uh, field when we were in grad school, whether we were in grad school just a couple of months ago in May, or we were in grad school five years ago, or you know, twenty-five years ago. So, um, you know, uh, grace as you figure. You know, I wish you all grace as you figure out, like, you know, how to do this. But also calling people. You know, um, I, I, I think Kate and I are both really happy to chat, Chris. You were great in your BBC piece. Like, you know, I mean, there's a lot of wise people out there and uh, I think generosity of, of spirit. And, and, um, and I think also framing things about what are those major issues really about? You know, what are those major issues that are changing things? Um, you know, Jennifer Holt was brought up. She's amazing at thinking about, you know, how digital distribution has shifted things. Uh, and Andrew DeWard is, you know, it, his stuff will make your 
brain explode in terms of understanding who actually owns these corporations. So there's there's wonderful work out there. Um, and so explore where your passions are, where your curiosity lies. And I think also that point of, you know, sending our students off, whether they're going into the industry or not, I'll refer back to that business you know, reporter interview I did where we got to the end of the conversation. Just like, you know, this sounds a lot like, you know, things happening everywhere else, like in journalism. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's the point. The exploitation, the income inequality, the bowing to Wall Street, like all of this is, you know, I said to her, like, look at your own industry. This is happening here. So wherever students go, this is the kind of stuff they're going to be facing and have to figure out how to navigate. Yeah. To just know the questions to ask. Yep. Which is what, you know, good academics do. We um, certainly were, we're, uh, expected to come up with answers, but part of that is you have to know what to ask before you can figure out how to research to find the answer. So, one of the things that I also hope is that that learning about labor disputes and learning about labor conditions, even if it's not about necessarily teaching them the right questions to ask, it's just teaching them a bit more empathy. I think that that's a really big. You don't want to be the exploiter. <laughs> I don't. I don't really want any of my students to be. Um, you know, I don't want to see their their names like on the end of a you know a list of who's bargaining for the AMPTP at strike day one hundred and ten or whatever. But um, you know, I think that that part of the kind of like empathy of understanding multiple perspectives on this. I do think I sometimes I find like in some of these and sometimes in industry classes students have affective relationships with these streamers um and so making sure that they're not identifying too strongly with the company i think that that's one of the other things that's really yeah ask ask questions and learn a bit of empathy i think those are the things that we hopefully can leave them with you radical <laughs> <laughs> radical empathy <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say that there there is an actual bitter southerner flag that says practice radical empathy. All right. Well, thank you both so much for this conversation. It was really fascinating. I'm uh, really excited to uh, get this out into the world. So uh, good luck with your, your leave, Kate, and with Miranda figuring out uh, what you're going to teach in, I guess, just a few weeks. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. You know, listening to this, it seems like everybody, when they're contacted by press about a current issue, they almost like have to have a checklist of things that they're going to, they're, that they're going to anticipate being asked and that they have to redirect away from. Yeah, good point. You know, just, just like, well, that's really not exactly <laughs> how I would think about this issue. Yeah. You know, and then kind of, and then make the pivot to, to a more substantive kind of question. Yeah. And that can be hard because, you know, as they talked about, you got to get the, the thing they're looking for, right? The journalists are oftentimes, I mean, you know, I described a couple of those cases where they didn't know anything and I had to kind of teach them, but oftentimes they're just looking for that quote where they just want to plug in, you know, Professor X says what they're already looking right. for. And as you say, that, that's not always what we think should be the takeaway. So it can be a difficult negotiation there. Yeah. Yeah. They want a sassy quote and that's going to be kind of punchy and that just kind of serves as an anchor in the piece or something. And that's that's hard for us to deliver. Well, and then in every case, also, I forget things. So like you, you know, just like anything like you, you know, this happens in class, right, where uh, someone has a question, you answer it. And then later you're like, oh, darn it, I should have said that. And so that happens to me, too, at least in the classroom the next day, you can go, you know, I want to return back to to David's comment and add this. But you can't 
you know, call up the New York Times again or the BBC and say, you know, can I fix that thing I said? So, yeah. Uh, well, I also wanted to bring up, uh, you have a bit of public scholarship because you were just on a podcast. I was. Tell us um, about it. It was goofy. It was fun. Uh, so uh, Paula Poundstone and Adam Felber from uh, NPR's uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, they have a, a podcast called Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. <laughs> and they just bring on, I, I think honestly, they do a lot of just kind of hanging out and uh, chatting with each other, and then they get around to their guests. So they clearly are having a good time. But they just, every episode is focused on a particular topic, and they bring in somebody who is an expert. And that expert could be a traffic safety engineer or somebody who does, I don't know, transcendental meditation or a scholar of a certain kind. And so they just, I just got an email from one of their producers and asked if, I wanted to be on their show. And I was like, I don't, sure. <laughs> Nobody listens to me, so I could be on Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. There you go. That's, um, that's a and good they just wanted And they just wanted a TV historian. Mm -hmm. What kind of questions do they have for you? So some of them were, were like the kinds of, they were kind of, kind of classic. Um, when did reality TV start? Right. And how amazing is Betty White? <laughs> and... <laughs> Is it really true that some people didn't like some reviewers didn't like the Dick Van Dyke show? Oh wow! At least they're and, a little bit in, in actual TV history and not just oh, like yeah, 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 Sopranos stuff. Okay, yeah, no, it was they actually wanted to focus on that kind of stuff. Um, so that was fun. I have started getting you know some little pings on Facebook and Twitter and stuff from people listening, and I think actually the place where I where I may have um, stepped into it and gotten myself you know. A kind of, I, I don't, I don't think I'm being attacked or anything, but you know, I maybe made some people a little bit grumpy was when I, I declined to, to clap loud enough for Betty White. I think. <laughs> really? Wow. I mean, the question, I mean, it was just a question about like, um, her support of a black performer on a show. Mm. And of course, like in the retelling, it, it turns into like Betty White leading a, a massive movement and. Um, being a kind of bellwether for certain kind of activism and stuff. And, and I just said, you know, I'm not honestly sure. And um, so I'm just going to go with the man who shot Liberty Valance uh, response, which was, you know, when the legend becomes fact, you print the legend. Right. And I'm not going to, like, Betty White's awesome. Yeah. That's fine. But um, she is not actually, you know, um, well, I... I just think that that response was not quite enough for some people. Yeah. Um, and she might not always be the heroine of every story, including stories about um, black performers on television. Right. You know, that, that she is maybe a witness to some of that and maybe a good ally and an advocate, but that doesn't make her, you know, the center of that story. Hmm. And I didn't get into any of that. Like yeah. there was, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't the, um, the issue. It was just like, do I dare not clap loud <laughs> enough for Betty White right. when I'm being interviewed yeah. publicly? But it was fun. It was a good time. That's another version then of like what a journalist is looking for. And so like what a fan is looking for. And yes, do you want the, do you want the truth? Can you handle the truth <laughs> or not? Like how much do you really want? So yeah, but that's okay. Um, and it was fun. And I, um, I ended with a little, with a little bit of a flag warning about, about the upcoming, ATSC 3.0 next generation television stuff. Oh, good. 
which is going to potentially open up the possibility of targeted ads on television that are that are individually and demographically targeted and also targeted content like plug-in inserts in local news. Mm-hmm. And they were they were both horrified. Yeah. And of course they had never heard about that and and so, you know, I felt like that was something that deserved to get a little attention and maybe benefited from being put into some kind of historical context. Yeah, that's great stuff to bring up because I, I think that's going to be a huge potential change and no one knows about it. Like, uh, you know, in contrast to something like when HD came along and everyone kind of knew it was coming, like no one knows about this happening and it's really, really significant. Yeah, wouldn't it be great if TV could be more like Facebook? <laughs> awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, super duper. All right. Well, uh, we will put a link to your podcast appearance in our show notes so folks can look for that at uh, aka-media.org. Man, you're getting like all of the punctuation, the yeah. prepositions. You are just knocking it out of the park. This is what happens when you're on sabbatical. Yeah, you don't have some rest. a million other things on your mind. <laughs> That's good. That's good. You deserve it. Yeah. Um, also, uh, we want to tease for upcoming episodes. We do have some new folks on board, so we wanted to Woo-hoo! give a shout out to them because they're, uh, they've started helping us, and you're going to hear from, uh, from them in future episodes. So thank you to them for stepping up and volunteering to help us out. Uh, so first of all, we will have Michael Newman, who is professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in the Department of English, the program in Media, Cinema, and Digital Studies, and the program in Film Studies. So he is all over the place at UWM. So thank you for being on board, Michael Newman. So we will have two Michaels, not one but two. We'll sort it out. Yeah, we'll figure that out. Uh, then Jonathan Nichols-Pethick is Professor of Media Studies and Department of Communication and Theater at DePauw. He also serves as the director of the Pulliam Center for Contemporary Media and director of the Media Fellows Program. So Another great addition. Yeah, he had a podcast for um, a number of years, a really great interview podcast. So uh, we're really thrilled that he is bringing uh, his expertise to us. And then finally, we have crossed the pond. So previously, our uh, you know our international representation was like Bill Kirkpatrick living in Canada, but now we have someone living in France. So this is David Lipson, who is associate professor of American Studies at the University of Strasbourg. So welcome, David. And and at the risk of of invoking uh, a corporeal presence that is that is not uh, audible, uh, David is figuratively in the room with us while we're recording this right now, but he's not on mic, and so um, so he can make funny faces at us and, and um, <laughs> make us screw up. But we're really really glad to have him joining us. Yeah, so uh, so we're gonna get in a lot of really new interesting content, and maybe episodes more regular than every four months or so. So we're excited yeah. about that. And we'll do some uh, more extensive intros with them and actually get them to talk Yeah. soon. Yes. And then uh, then finally, also thank yous to our uh, old standby. So Frank Mondelli, who is starting a new job as an assistant professor at the University of Delaware. So good luck yeah. out there, Frank. And then we got Stephanie Brown, visiting assistant professor at Washington College. We are also grateful for the golden years of Todd Thompson down at the University of Texas at Austin. And we would like to thank the Society for Cinema and Media Studies for their support of this podcast. And the Department of Prepositions. Nice. All right. So, yeah, we'll come at you, uh, you know, with our next episode. Yeah, we're going to have some more. We're going to have some more uh, labor content, whether the strike is over or not. And I'll just end with this question. What are you not watching? Huh. 
I think my first thing that I'm not watching is Bill Maher. Ah, good. Yes, and then the Drew Barrymore show, I think, yeah, is something there you I'm go. not going to be, not not be tuning into anytime soon. Yep. Okay. On that note, uh, happy September, and uh, stay frosty out there.